we have these past four weeks, uh, we've sought to get some insight um, from this Old Testament uh, book, uh, a book of wisdom. It's a, it's a book of poetry, the book of Job. I'm not sure what your expectations were. Um, I, I often have expectations, and a lot of times they're not met. Uh, even as I approach trying to, to teach, uh, I look back and say, I wished I had done this and I wished I had done that. But then I rest in God's providence in that, that as I've prayed and worked, that we have heard what we've needed to hear at the time. But I know that what I say uh, is not the end of what is heard in God's Word. Uh, I know that hopefully it opens up the doors for all of us to read and to study God's Word and to understand it uh, better. Uh, it's been my intent along the way that it would uh, help us uh, as a church family in at least three ways. And I've uh, shared this with a couple of folks. One, I, I wanted us to uh, hear and see and work with the text and what it had to say about human suffering and about life and about who God is in the midst of human suffering. Um, I wanted it to make a difference not only in our own lives as we look at it, but that it would make a difference in the lives of our families because we have already prophetically stated, because God's Word has pointed us to that, that our families are headed for struggling and suffering. Uh, we have been there. Uh, we will be there again. Uh, and it will become uh, even more real to us, I know, in the days ahead. And I want us to be equipped and prepared to deal with that and to look at it and then to stand in the face of it with hope and confidence in God to where we don't wilt and we're not shattered uh, and we don't abandon each other or abandon the faith, but we look to God and rest in Him. And then I also wanted us to be able to, when we come out on the other side of this, to be able to stand in the face of our community. Uh, when they say things that are not right about God, uh, when they point to God in an accusatory kind of way, or they just disregard God altogether, I wanted us to be able to be those that would take God's Word and say, no, that's not what God's Word says about Him. Let's look at this, and let's look at it in the face of reality. It's been said that... Uh, that the main complaint of Job uh, is this thing that Job is every man. And I think we have all seen ourselves in Job uh, to some degree. Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous like me suffer? That was what Job was asking. Why do the wicked prosper and why do the righteous suffer? And the book of Job does attempt to help us understand uh, the deficiencies of that worldview. And we have talked about those over the course of of the last weeks. His complaint is, is that there is a world in which suffering can come to a man like him. Uh, I'm reminded I had a friend back here some years ago uh, receive word that, uh, that he had cancer. And someone asked him, said, well, well, how do you feel about it as it relates to you? And he said, um, I, I'm not too good to have it. I'm no better than anyone else. If someone else can have cancer, I can have cancer too. And I know that sounds kind of, kind of plain Jane and vanilla, but a lot of folks don't look at it that way. They question and wonder, why me? Why me? And uh, I remember Mr. Harry Moore said, why not me? Why not me? Why can't it be me? And it was him. Uh, and God was merciful to him, uh, but he succumbed to the sickness and he passed away. Uh, Job was looking and saying, why me? Uh, and all of us at some point in time may say that. 
But it's been posed that the gospel teaches a different version of how God deals with things. Job seems to, and all of his friends seem to look at everything based upon God looking at them uh, and uh, punishing the guilty uh, and upholding the righteous. And he does ultimately do that. But we don't see that always expressed in the things that happen in the course of this life. And the gospel does point to the fact that it just doesn't happen that way in the course of this life. But it doesn't mean that God's not good. Job is so attached to uh, the consequences. It's kind of this theory that uh, in reality, that in God's reality, that it's impossible for him to see eternal reality behind his experience, the reality of works and consequences. In other words, I do good, therefore good things should happen to me. And we're here today, and I think for a lot of us, we still struggle with that. And we probably will struggle with it for a while. And hopefully we will get to the point that that will not be a struggle with us. And it seems to be fine, and it doesn't surface as long as everything's going along well, because we see that everything's going along well, and what do we see? Well, we're doing pretty well too. So we're doing pretty well, so things are going along pretty well. But what happens when we seem to be doing well and then things don't come along so well? And therein is where we find a dilemma uh, and a quandary, which brings us to kind of giving some consideration quickly to some of the things that we have hopefully gleaned. And I'm not going to rehearse all of them, but I do think that these are important. One is suffering is a universal enterprise. Uh, suffering is no stranger to this world and no one is a stranger to suffering. Not even uh, the godly. I've been reading uh, the account of John and Betty Stan. And uh, I've been reading through some missionary biographies and um, I have... Um, intend to pass these along to us for us to look at uh, but I want you to hear John Stam tell about him and his wife godly people missionaries to China I want you to hear what he has to say the backstory of this is that they've been married a little over a year uh, they've had their first child they're serving in China um, there's a lot of conflict in China and uh, here's what he writes after they have been captured by the communists. He said, Dear brethren, we're in the hands of the communists here, being taken from uh, Singtet when they passed through yesterday. I tried to persuade them to let my wife and baby go back to Singtet with a letter to you, uh, but they wouldn't let her. And so we both made the trip to Mishoa today my wife traveling a part of the way on the horse. They want $20,000 before they'll free us, which we have told them that we are sure will not be paid. Famine, relief money, and our personal money and effects are all in their hands now. God give you wisdom in what you do, and God give us grace and fortitude. Uh, he is able. goes on to say this, uh, immediately after receiving news of John and Betty's deaths, they were killed. 
the um, China Inland Mission telegraphed this. Deeply appreciated your consolation. And this goes out to his dad. They were sending a letter to John's daddy, Peter Stan. And Peter writes, deeply appreciate your consolation. Sacrifice seems great. But not too great for him who gave himself for us. Experiencing God's grace. I believe wholeheartedly Romans 8.28. He went on to write, Our dear children, John C. Stam and Elizabeth Scott Stam have gone to be with the Lord. They loved Him. They served Him. And now they are with Him. What could be more glorious? It is true. The manner in which they were sent out of this world was a shock to us all. But whatever of suffering they may have endured is now past. And they are both infinitely blessed with the joys of heaven. I read that because I want you to know that the things that we have been saying about human suffering and about the glory of God and His goodness are real. They are real for those who trust in Christ. They are real for those who rest in Christ. It is a universal enterprise. But we've also said that God cannot be removed from the suffering equation. He is the ultimate cause, though not the direct cause. And that suffering is never meaningless. And that physical earthly death ends all earthly suffering for the one who dies. But we also acknowledge that even in that it produces suffering for others, doesn't it? How we suffer when those we love die, even when they die in the Lord. We suffer with grief. And we suffer in other ways. Physical earthly death is not the end, but there is hope in suffering and beyond this suffering and hope beyond this life. And that brings us to our conclusion today. How is it so? How does the end of this life bring hope? How does the end of this suffering bring hope beyond that? I mentioned earlier that some of you, uh, we had some talks with some of you, how you've been helped uh, through the course of this time. Uh, some of you have given testimony that you have been helped through this Job series. I even talked to Catherine again this morning and some of the things that our ladies uh, have dealt with already in their first session of their Bible study pointed back to Job and actually dealt with the text in Job. Uh, we've just mentioned these things. You know why? Because they are so real. So how can we say that there is hope beyond human suffering and hope beyond this life? We can say it because of the gospel of grace. We can say it because of the gospel of grace. The gospel of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they're all the same. 
And Job isn't void of the gospel. In fact, the gospel is displayed and pointed to all throughout Job. And that's where we want to conclude. Because if we are going to talk about hope, we need to know where that hope rests. We need to go grab a hold of that hope because there are those here this morning that have not yet trusted Christ. You've not yet professed faith in Christ. You're not yet living for Him. You're not yet following Him. You're not yet resting in His atonement. And I will say that beyond Him, as we sang today, there is no hope. There's not another hope beyond Christ. We looked at Moses was interceding on behalf of the people. And then Jesus comes in and intercedes on our behalf. And through His blood and His atoning work makes it possible for there to be hope. Job points to the truth of the gospel. And I want us to look at seven ways. And I'm going to try to do this quickly for us this morning. Look at seven ways. Again, this is broad. We've looked at broad things here in the, in the scope of Job. It'll just drive us back to read Job differently, to understand Job differently. But seven ways that Job points us to the gospel. The first is, is that everything is centered in heaven. Go to Job chapter 1, and then go to Job chapter 42. And you'll be at the first chapter, and you'll be at the last chapter. Where do we see everything taking place in Job chapter 1? In heaven. In heaven. In heaven. Their God in heaven has those that He has created coming back and reporting to Him. And everything is being directed from heaven by God. And then go to Job chapter 42 in verse 7. And after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuahite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told him. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Begins and ends in heaven. What does that tell us? How does this point to the gospel? Well, the answer is, is that the glory of God is what is on display in Job. Not the faithfulness of a man. But the glory of God. Everything originates from the throne of God. We have said that over and over again. But don't miss this because this is central to the gospel is that everything is settled at the throne of God. If the superiority of God's glory isn't grasped, then we will have no basis for the gospel. It will not make sense to us. God's redemptive work doesn't make sense. God's redemptive work doesn't make sense when it's man-centered. It only makes sense when the superiority of His glory is at the forefront of everything. It breaks down when we put man in the center of it. It destroys 
the gospel because it is never intended to be focused and centered on man. It is to be focused and centered on the glory of God. Man will never be happy in a gospel that puts him in the center of it. Man will never be fulfilled when the gospel becomes something that is about him and him alone. It only makes sense. It only makes sense when it's about the glory of God. Suffering only makes sense when it's about the glory of God. And suffering is at the heart of the gospel, and we're going to see that in a moment. The superiority of of God's glory is at the forefront of everything. How do we know that? Let's look at the New Testament for just a minute. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In other words, His glory has been on display. Alright? In the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And what did they do? They exchanged the glory of God, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. That could even be themselves. The point is that The glory of God is the superior element that lays at the foundation of everything that has to do with His redemptive work. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1-4, through he says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced this graceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in their case. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God who is the image of God. Do you get it? The thing that stands opposed to the superiority also of God also does away with the hope that rests in salvation. The hope that rests at the end of suffering. The hope that even in our suffering now that there is something more than just dealing with the suffering. Make no mistake, Job is pointing to the superiority of the glory of God and the superiority of His glory is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. We hear it every week right here. We sing about it every week right here. Please don't miss it. Don't let it fall on deaf ears. Don't take it for granted. It is to be celebrated in worship. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. The second thing we see in Job is the significance of righteousness. At the, heart, at the heart of the gospel is the significance of righteousness. This is critical for us to see. 
Job is, as we see in chapter 1, marked out by God as one who is righteous, blameless, upright, and fears God. We've talked about it. But not only does God characterize him in that way, but others see him in that way as well. In other words, his life is a reflection of what God has said about him and done in him. The narrator of Job says that he's blameless, upright, and he feared God. But what do we know about Job? Well, he wasn't perfect, was he? We know that. Go to Job chapter 42. Turn to the last chapter. What do we hear? Job says this of himself in verse 6. Therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. What is he saying? He is saying that I'm not perfect. God's Word is communicating to us that while this has been declared by God and that there is a practical righteousness in Job's life, that he is not yet complete in that entirely and that he still sins and struggles with sin and then there is repentance. But it points to the significance of righteousness and it points to the fact that God is putting his finger on the righteous but God puts his finger on another righteous person. Look in Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. God's pointing His finger again to another righteous one, a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Jeremiah chapter 33 and verse 15, In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land who's he pointing to he is talking about the lord jesus christ he's putting his finger on another righteous one first corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 and because of him you are in christ jesus who became to us wisdom from god righteousness sanctification and redemption. What is he saying? Christ, who is the righteous one, is the one who delivers the righteousness that we need. It's at the heart of justification, which is exactly what is being pointed to when Job is being pointed out by God. God is putting a finger on one who has been justified. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. For our sake He made Him, who? That God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become, what? The righteousness of God. Righteousness is at the heart of salvation. Righteousness is at the heart of the gospel. And then how did Paul speak about it in terms of the gospel? Well, in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. First, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now hear this. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, the gospel points to the necessity 
of righteousness. God was pointing to Job. He pointed to Job and he pointed out to for all of us to see and to recognize that here was a righteous one. Not yet perfect. Wouldn't be perfect. That isn't the point. He's pointing to the centrality and the necessity of righteousness as it pertains to the gospel. But there's a third point that Job makes. Job points us to the reality of a real enemy and a real accuser. How do we know that? Go back to chapter 1. What do we have here? Well, we have God pointing out to Satan this righteous man, and we have this accuser now coming and saying, he is only this because of what you've done. Remove these things and he will curse you. In other words, he is accusing him and saying that he will not hold up under the scrutiny that I will bring about upon him in suffering. You take your hand off of him and he will curse you. You allow these things to happen to him and he will curse you. Job shows us that their evil is personified. He doesn't discount the evil of our hearts. All of your problems, all of our problems is not Satan. Okay? That's not what's being communicated. What is being communicated is, is that there is a clear and present danger in Satan, he is an accuser, the Bible says. He is a deceiver. He is a liar. He's a murderer. He seeks to steal. He seeks to kill. He seeks to destroy. He's a strong man, but he's not the strongest man. Jesus said of him in John chapter 8 and verse 44, talking to the religious leaders, he said, You are of your father the devil, and you will do as your father desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. John, in 2 John in his epistle, he says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. They are deceivers and they are antichrist. And he goes on to talk about that because they are driven by the deceiver, and they act like their father, the deceiver. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 3, talking about what Jesus is enduring, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 27. Remember now, Jesus has just cast out the demon. Catch that context, and now hear this. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed, speaking of Jesus, by Beelzebub, and by the, pre, the prince of demons. He cast out demons, and he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one enters a strong man's house and plunders his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. 
He's a strong man, but he can be bound. And Jesus is bound him. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, we hear, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What is the point? Job points to the fact that there is a real and present danger with the accuser. And we know, we know that it is real. Because in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10 we hear, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of His, of His Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. The reality is, is that there is a, an accuser that accuses you day and night before God. There's a strong man, but there's a stronger man. The fourth thing that Job points us to is that there is a defense of the righteous on the part of God. Go back to Job chapter 1. God points to Job and says he's righteous. Have you considered him? Satan says, let me have at him and he will curse you. And God said, no, he won't. He comes back again. He says, consider the righteous man. He said, you let me have at him. And he said, and he will curse you. And God said, no, he won't. Have at him. He's not going to curse me. God defended Job. He defended Job in the end. Look at chapter 42 again. I want you to catch this because all of this is gospel here. After the Lord in verse 7 of chapter 42 had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Still being defended by God. Satan said he would cave in and curse God, and God said, no, he won't. God could defend him. Why? We already know it wasn't because Job was perfect. He was still struggling with sin. God could defend him because God is the one who guaranteed his righteousness. He had given him his righteousness. That whole piece there is about the justification of God. He had made Job righteous. He upheld his righteousness. He defended Job's righteousness because he would sustain him. God could defend him and guarantee his righteousness even in the most horrific circumstances because God made him righteous, God declared him righteous, and God sustained his righteousness. That's the great exchange. Haven't we heard it before? 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read it just a moment ago. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the work of justification. Job is crying out and pointing to everything that God is doing. He is doing because He has justified Job. And Job has trusted in God. 
Remember what Christ told Peter just before his arrest? Look in Luke chapter 22. I love this. In verse 31, he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Sound anything like Job? Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. I'm going to let him have you. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now I want you to know, Christ prayed for him. That meant something. He was interceding for him. That meant that it was going to happen. It meant that it was done. He wants at you. I'm going to let him have at you. But don't worry about that. Don't worry about that because I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you're going to fall. But then what does he say? And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What was happening? Satan said, I want at him because I want to show you like he was going to show God that his righteousness was not intact. And Christ said, have at him. Have at him. He may stumble, but he's not going to fall because I have him. Paul, in writing to the Romans, penned these words. Romans chapter 8. I know we look at it often, but I want you to hear the context of it. Who shall bring any charge against the elect? And then hear this. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who dies. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us you know why there is hope in the blood of Christ because he has died for us and he has been raised again and he is interceding for us and like God did the Lord God did for Job like Christ did for Peter he does for us he gives us that righteousness for those who trust in Him. And He holds us and sustains us. That's the reason that there is hope in the midst of suffering. And the reason that there is hope beyond suffering. Because you cannot be destroyed. You cannot be torn down. That faith cannot be ripped away from you. Fifth, Job points us to the fact that the suffering of the righteous brings about a righteousness not yet known. Won't you stay here with me with this? What did we hear about Job? Job is upright. He's blameless. He fears God. We get to chapter 42 and where do we find him? We find him in ashes, repenting of sin. What did he say? Look there in chapter 42. I can't get away from this. In verse 1, then Job answered the Lord and said, after God had finished, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. What did he learn through all of that? God, you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. In other words, God, 
I'm confessing to you. I opened my mouth when I should have had it shut. I said things that were not right. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I'll question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. What had happened to Job? From faith to faith? From righteousness to a greater righteousness? Because now from intimacy with God to deeper intimacy with God? From knowing God to knowing God better? From loving God to loving God more? From worshiping God to worshiping God in greater ways? Here's what we mean. Job's suffering led to his righteousness being perfected. It was being perfected. He was being sanctified. His ongoing salvation. But now catch this. Christ's suffering led to the same thing. To what? To the salvation of others. To sanctification for others. Christ's suffering led to the salvation of many and every believer's ongoing sanctification. God was pointing to what took place in the course of Job's life that could only come from suffering. Could only come from suffering. And He is pointing to one who is perfectly righteous, who will suffer, that will bring life and righteousness and salvation to those who will trust in Him. And it can come no other way except through suffering. Hear what Peter had to say. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. In other words, there's no other way that we can get there other than Him suffer. That He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, that made alive in the Spirit. But that was also said in the Old Testament too, wasn't it? Listen to Isaiah chapter 53. We've read it many times. Verses 10 and 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many, what? To be accounted righteous. And he'll bear their iniquities. Suffering leads to righteousness. The sixth thing that we see that Job points to in relation to the gospel is Job points to the need for someone to intercede for the sinner. Remember when Job was working through all of this, he said, I just need someone to plead my case to God. He cries out for someone to intercede for him. He needs someone to plead his case to God, and he can't find anyone, and he knows that he's not able to plead his case to God. What does God do at the very end? 
Well, look there in chapter 42. We read it just a moment ago. In verse 7. Now Job was asking all along, someone plead my case to God. Intercede for me. He knew he needed an intercessor. And then God comes and says, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as your servant Job has. Don't you push pause there just a minute. Booney helped us when we looked at our confession this morning. He gave the context. What had happened? Moses, interceding on behalf of the people, had gone and received the law. He comes back down. He sees the sin of the people in the course of that breaks the law, breaks, breaks the tablets, goes back up, and now he is again interceding. And what does he ask at the end? I'm going to paraphrase this. But when God tells him who he is and what he is about in his grace and in his mercy and in his judgment, what is it that Moses asked for? Open your worship guides here just a minute. You see, I want you to hear it again. What does he ask for? If now I have found favor in your sight as an intercessor, O Lord, Please let the Lord go in the midst of us. In other words, please come to us. We can't get to you. We can't come to you. You come to us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Do you see the significance of that? Job now God has come and all of this has happened and God says, my anger burns against you and you can't get to me. What does He tell him though? He says, now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant shall do what? He shall pray for you for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your foolishness. When he prays for you, I'll receive his prayer and I will not deal with you in the way that you should be dealt with. In other words, I will be gracious and merciful to you. It's incredible. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 25 through 28. Pointing to the one who is the, the better intercessor. Consequently, he, meaning Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. Moses was wanting God to draw near to them, wanted to draw near to God. Job's friends, after they are confronted with God, it's clear that if they're to get near to God, someone has to intercede for them. And Job is marked out as the righteous one who would now intercede for them, pointing to Christ. Consequently, Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. 
For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as a high priest, and the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. We read it earlier in Hebrews 9 in our assurance of pardon. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not His own. For then He would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And we went on to read, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly await Him. And seven Job speaks of that one, that second one. What does he say? Chapter 19 and verse 25. We've read it four or five times through the course of the last week. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. Have we missed any element in the course of that as it relates to the gospel? Not one. I'm almost convinced that if I'm going to preach the gospel from the Old Testament, I'm going to come to Job to preach it. I think people will relate to that in the midst of suffering to help them understand the nature of suffering because suffering is such a critical component to the gospel. And the hope that comes out of that because our Redeemer suffered. And He lives. And because He lives, we can live also. Will you pray with me? Father, You were merciful and gracious to Job. You marked Him off and justified Him in Christ. You declared Him righteous. You sustained Him and upheld Him. Satan accused him. And you held him out for Satan to sift. But he wouldn't sift through your fingers. Peter didn't sift through your fingers. And Father, today we are grateful that according to your word and your promises to us in Christ, that even in the most horrific suffering, and agonizing pain and struggles and hardship 
those of us who trust in you will not be sifted through your fingers either. But that you hold us and sustain us and keep us and strengthen us and sanctify us and will in the end deliver us into your presence to the praise of your glory. Your glory in Christ, your glory in yourself, your glory in your spirit, a glory that in your grace you pass on to us and gather us up. Father, would you grant us a remembrance of these truths wherever it is that life takes us, whatever it is that comes in our path, that we would hold on to this with its certainty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.